Welcome church. Happy Sunday. Hope that you guys are all doing well and that you are looking forward to continuing our journey through the gospel of Mark. Yes, we are coming near the end, but we're not quite there yet. And so uh, I'm excited to get into that today with you. My name is Alex, for those of you who don't know me. And as Rachel just read, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14 near the end of the chapter today. Now, I want to give you a, a bit of a, a disclaimer. If you like to take notes, I see you, I love you, I know that some of you, many of you have already written on a brand new page in your notebook, the scripture and the date. I'm just going to give you a warning. I have one point today, just one, so you might not even need your notebook, but I hope to just lead us in worship. If nothing else, even if you don't take notes today, just put the pen down and let's worship Jesus. So why don't we pray as we get into the word and ask the Lord to speak. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive and active. And Lord, as we open it up today and unpack this incredible story of the trial that you faced, that you, that you stood on, Lord, I pray that you would, uh, you would help us to see the depth of what you've done for us. And I pray that we would ground our security and our hope and our joy, not in ourselves, but in you. Lord, you are so good. Would you give us hearts to receive, ears to hear, and minds to understand just the depths of your faithfulness and the depths of your good news today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know if you guys can believe it. We're here in May. It's May 2nd. Here we are. We made it. Um, obviously, this year plus has been, has been challenging on many different fronts. Um, and as challenging as this year is, has been, is, continues to be, I think one of the actually many blessings of a challenging time is the realization, the reminder of how much we desperately need Jesus. Now, more specifically, what I mean is, is the reminder or the, the realization that that our hearts need above everything else to say with confidence, Jesus, my life is yours. Maybe you've experienced that at some point in the past year. You've been reminded. It's been brought back to your heart of how desperately we need to be able to say with confidence, Jesus, my life, every part of it, it's yours and it's not mine. I'm not in control, I've been reminded of that. So Lord, I place it into your hands. And when I say that we need Jesus, I don't just mean like an arm's length, like superhero, we need Jesus. No, I, I'm saying we need Jesus to be Lord, Lord of our lives. Now maybe you can relate to this experience of like a challenging time, a challenging season like this year has been. The experience of those challenging times actually bringing up to the surface things that maybe you forgot were in your, your heart or they're just idols that you thought you could hide or things that you thought you could bury down. But in challenging times, sometimes those bubble up to the surface. Maybe in, in easier times or in normal times, those things are easier to hide. Right now or in the past few months, maybe you've experienced that. Just some of, the, some of our idols are a bit more visible. 
and maybe even more tempting, you know, when we're, we're going through days and weeks and we think, like, I just, I need a sense of control. I'll go down this path for that quick fix, that feeling of control. Or I need that sense of hope. I'll, I'll take the path of least resistance to what I think will bring a sense of hope. When the truth is that we need Jesus to be Lord above everything else. Church, we still need him to define what is good, to determine what is true, and to provide for our needs. In fact, that's what we mean when we say fully alive in Jesus. We mean fully alive in the sense that we have died to ourselves and he is Lord, he is our authority, and he is our God. And I really think this story that we're going to open up today in Mark actually speaks to that in a pretty profound way. Because even if we are followers of Jesus, we're tuned in today, we say, yeah, that's, that's my commitment. I want to make Jesus Lord. We recognize, don't we, that part of the complication is that in our sin, in our pride, we can almost be spiritually blind to that in all areas of our life. At times, our sin can blind us to the fact that true life isn't actually us being God, but it's actually surrendering ourselves into the hands of Jesus. And so maybe at some point in the past year, maybe even right now, you've experienced that kind of feeling. You've felt those things bubbling to the surface. You've felt that tension. There is hope. There is absolutely hope. And again, I think this story makes a fascinating announcement, a gospel proclamation about how we can confidently surrender our lives into the hands of Jesus to be Lord. So today, really simply, I want to unpack this story a bit, and I just want to look at basically two things. Number one, what Peter couldn't do, and secondly, what Jesus did do. What Peter couldn't do and what Jesus did do. And again, I have one point, not three, just one, and it's not till the end. So note takers, again, I'm sorry. Doodle, if, doodle along if that helps. All right, let's set the scene. Let's kind of make sure we understand exactly what was going on. There is a lot happening in that passage that Rachel read for us just a few moments ago. Let's set the scene. So at this point, Jesus had been arrested, and he's now been brought before the high priest, the chief priest, the Sanhedrin, elders and scribes. He's been brought before this huge crowd to stand on trial, we'll call it. Now, Peter was the only disciple who followed in any sort of way at this point. Mark says that Peter followed at a distance and he stayed out in the courtyard of the high priest, close enough to kind of see or hear a little bit of what's going on, but not right in there with Jesus. Now, to say that it was a trial is being fairly generous. Um, if we were to say a trial, we would expect some sort of order, some sort of process, <laughs> decorum, even hopefully justice. But I don't know if you picked up on it. That's not exactly what Jesus received. Look again at verse 55 and 56. Here's how things begin. It says, The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony, searching for testimony against Jesus in order to put him to death. 
but they could not find any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and their testimonies did not agree. Okay, so we already have a bit of a bias here. Looking for testimonies to put Jesus to death, but they couldn't come up with anything. There was no cohesion in what they were saying. They couldn't agree. And on this trial, from Mark's account, Jesus was asked two questions. The first question that he was asked is this. Do you have a response, Jesus? Do you want to say anything in defense of the testimonies that are being brought to you? To which he said nothing. And Mark is repeating himself here. He's redundant. Jesus was silent and he did not answer. That was question number one. Do you want to say anything to these testimonies that are clearly false? And Jesus said nothing. Second question on trial. Jesus, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? To which Jesus did speak. Verse 62. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Okay. Now he chooses to speak. Remember, in the Gospel of Mark, there have been many times when people are starting to pick up on who Jesus is, and he warns them, you know, keep this quiet. Don't tell anybody right now. Now's not the time. But now here, emphatically, very, very, very emphatically, he answers the question. I am the Messiah. And what he actually does in this answer, it's quite brilliant. He combines two Old Testament passages, Daniel chapter 7 and Psalm 110, both about the Messiah, and with this response, it was quite explosive. He emphatically states, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the true prophet. All that I said would hap- that was going to happen, even to the temple, that's going to come true. I will be vindicated. I will be raised to the right hand of the Father. Jesus is taking two passages that everyone who's putting him on trial would have known. And he's putting them together and he's saying, those, those are pointing to me. I am this Messiah, the true prophet, the true king, the true judge of the world. And if we had any doubt as to if they picked up on what he was saying, all we have to do is keep reading. Because at that point, the trial completely breaks down into absolute chaos Look at verse 63 and 64. Then the high priest, when he heard Jesus' words, he tore his robes and he said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving deserving death. Fascinating. That wasn't even their call. It wasn't even in their power. They would have to hand Jesus over to the Roman governor after this. But at this point, after Jesus' answer, this entire process completely breaks down. Decorum is gone. Order is gone. Justice is gone. In fact, they accuse Jesus of blasphemy, which literally means to exchange God's truth for a lie. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy, which means to exchange God's truth for a lie. Now the irony, irony is quite evident and pretty sad. 
Jesus has declared himself to be the Messiah, the true judge. He was going to come back and judge the world. And here he is being judged unjustly and wrongly. And to add to that further irony, in just a few hours, you flip ahead in the Gospel of Mark, they will literally exchange Jesus for a criminal named Barabbas. And then this happens at the end, verse 65. Then some there begin to spit on Jesus, to blindfold him and to beat him, saying, Prophesy, the temple servants also took him and slapped him. Do you see the hatred? Do you see the wickedness spilling out? Do you see what they're doing, the way they're mocking him? They're saying, if, if you are the true prophet, then prophesy. Who, who's hitting you? Can you see the, the, the depths of the hatred and the rejection that Jesus was facing? It's heartbreaking. Remember, church, remember who is treating Jesus this way. Servants of the temple. Those who are serving in the dwelling place of God. Those whose call was to lead others in worship had arrived now at this point of rejecting the very presence of God. Do you see the incredible distance and difference between the response of Jesus in the face of trial and the response of those who are putting him on trial? Who are we on the inside? Where's the, where's the fruit of the Spirit in this moment? Do you see the difference? Now that was Jesus' trial. Now, in a fascinating way, Mark puts Peter's story right up against Jesus' trial because in some ways, Peter is almost like put on a, a little mini trial of his own as well. Now, the scene with Peter was actually much, much quieter, as you probably picked up on. There wasn't an angry mob, but a few, a few servants of the high priest. Peter was not under the force of immediate flogging as Jesus was. He was, Mark points it out a couple times, he was warming himself by the fire. In many ways, P Peter was quite comfortable in this moment. And yet, in this much quieter scene, Peter would do exactly as Jesus said that he would do. Deny him three times. And that's what he does. Hey, you were with Jesus. Number one, Peter denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Number two, no, this man is one of them. Again, Peter deny it. And the third time, you certainly are one of them, since you also are a Galilean. And again, finally, Peter denied it. And he started, he, he denied it so strongly that, that Mark said he, he started to curse and swear, I don't know this man. I don't know what you're talking about. Three times on trial, Peter denies his Lord. I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. Verse 72 ends with this. As soon as Peter denied Jesus, immediately a rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter broke down and wept. So that's what happened. Now, what does it all mean? 
All right, let's look at what Peter couldn't do and what Jesus did do. What Peter couldn't do, put simply, Peter couldn't hang on to Jesus. He couldn't hang on to Jesus. To, to deny someone or something is, is really to distance yourself from them. To, to cut off association or to disassociate, to separate yourself. Now, I, I'm sure we could think of many reasons why Peter did this, of course. It's really hard to, to kind of point the finger and blame him. I'm sure part of it was a fear of, of guilt by association. Interestingly, though, kind of a side note, you might remember a few chapters earlier when several of the disciples were very keen to actually be quite associated with Jesus. James and John, they came to Jesus and said, hey, when you reach your moment of glory, we want to be on your right and your left in your power. We, we want to be like right beside you. Of course, obviously that has now changed for all the disciples, including Peter. At this point now, there's a, there's a fear, potentially, of, hey, what's happening to Jesus might actually happen now to me. And so I'm going to distance myself from Jesus. I'm sure you've had a similar experience where you've wanted to distance yourself. Maybe some more serious than others. The, the, the best example I could think of when I was thinking about it this week was uh, probably the, the last time that I'll ever go to a sporting event uh, when I'm cheering for the visiting team, especially wearing, wearing their merchandise. Uh, I went to a Detroit Lions game with Rachel and a couple friends because they were playing the Packers and I proudly had my Packers gear on. And, uh, well, let's just say I, I, I don't want to do that ever again. I, I'll watch from the comfort of my own home, but, but the, uh, the fans there were not very <laughs> welcoming or nice to me. And I, I stuck it out. I kept my jersey on proud, my hat on. Um, our two friends didn't have, they're not really Packers fans, so they were safe. Rachel had a jersey on, but it was conveniently like hidden under her jacket, which the, the longer the game went on, the, the higher the zipper went up. There was some fear of guilt by association there. We can understand, at least in part, can't we? What's going on in Peter's heart and mind here? It's hard to blame him. In fact, it's quite complicated, this moment, because, because Peter had heard Jesus' call and his invitation. You, you might remember this from Mark chapter 8. It was, it was quite a while ago, but only a few chapters ago. But it was at that chapter where Jesus said to the disciples, okay, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Peter heard that. And more than just hearing it, he wanted to do that. Earlier, when Jesus predicted that the disciples would scatter and fall away when this moment came, and he even predicted that Peter would deny him three times, very specifically, Peter said, Jesus, no, even if everyone falls away, I will never, I will not fall away. And Jesus said, Peter, you will. You will deny me three times tonight. And Peter insisted emphatically along with all the disciples, he said, no, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. He heard the call. He wanted to do it. Peter even tried. He tried to hang on. Think about it. After the arrest in the garden, why else is Peter still following at a distance? 
Why is Peter even here in the courtyard? Was it in part that he wanted to prove to Jesus, I'm not going to deny you, watch me, watch me, I'll go with you. He tried, he tried to hang on. But he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it fully. Eventually, Peter disassociated, he denied Jesus, he cut off association from him. In other words, in the moment, something else became more important to Peter than Jesus as his Lord. And he broke down and he wept. Jesus, I can't hang on. I can't hang on anymore. I was thinking about the end of that scene, and obviously I'm sure part of that was remorse. Part of that was, I'm sure, remorse, where, where Peter realizes and he's, he's, he's quite emotional, he's, he's breaking down. But I think it was more than that, too. Peter, in that moment, came to a, an overwhelming realization of his complete emptiness and his total need that he was in. Think about it. Peter was a man of, of a lot of talk, of boldness and great aspirations. But in this moment, he, he finally fully realizes that he can't. He can't fully hang on to Jesus. And it's in that moment that the blinders are off and he sees himself fully, he sees himself exposed. He, he's thinking to himself in that moment, I thought nothing would ever break my association, my commitment with Jesus. And church, I think this is really important because I, I've, read, I've heard this story many, many times before and I think it can be tempting to read it as like a lesson or a warning. You know, like, see, Peter failed. So when you're in that moment, you gotta do better than Peter, get ready. Just do what he did, but better. Hang on like he couldn't do. You know, try to take a run at it more intensely than Peter did. But you know what? I, I don't, from what I can tell of Peter, I don't think many of us would be able to have more intensity, have more love or commitment to, to Jesus than Peter did. I mean, a few hours earlier, in the face of an angry mob in the garden, Peter grabs a sword, cuts off a servant's ear, just like, let's go. <laughs> I, I don't know. That wasn't going to do it, Peter. But you could see his heart. Peter had enough, but it wasn't enough. He thought he had enough, but it wasn't enough. I, I, I don't know if you can see yourself in Peter at all right now. Maybe you're with me on this. I sense that, that many of us are facing like a similar kind of grief or weariness right now. Where for, for a variety of reasons, we're saying, Jesus, I don't know if I can hang on to you. Like I'm trying, I've heard it, I want to, I'm trying, but I don't know if I can hang on. Like this is hard right now. This year is hard right now. I don't know if I can hang on. You know, for, for some it might be just trying to hold fast to God's word, the truth of scripture as authority. When around you are competing worldviews and ideologies and they're kind of like waves crashing into a boat and you're like, I don't, I don't know if I can stay anchored to what is true. For others, maybe it's, 
I just don't know if I can hold fast to, to a heart of compassion or patience for others who maybe I'm in disagreement with or who've rejected me. Maybe it's just more general. I just don't know if I can hold fast to, to allowing Jesus to be my Lord. Like, I'm trying to cling to this identity in him, and yet it's so tempting to, to place my security in other places, easier fixes, quicker solutions. Do you feel that in any way? We can't hang on. I don't know if I can hang on. Jesus, I don't know if I can give this part of my life to you fully. I'm afraid. I'm tired. I'm bitter. 